Please open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 17. 2 Samuel chapter 17. Continuing our study through the Bible on Wednesday nights. And by way of review, we are currently in the life of David, King David, who is actually running for his life as his son Absalom has led a revolt against David and his kingdom. Uh, David has had to flee Jerusalem because his own son has come into Jerusalem with an army. And uh, we see as David leaves, some of his loyal friends are coming to him as he's departing the city. Even the priests would come and gather to him. They brought the Ark of the Covenant. They said, if the king's leaving, we're leaving. But we'll remember that David would stop them and actually send them back into the city. You're there in chapter 17, but just reviewing in chapter 15, uh, the king speaks to the priest. Verse 27, the king said to Zadok, the priest, are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace and your two sons with you, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. So while David leaves, he sends the priests back and he says, listen, you, your sons can be something of a conduit of information to me. And this is where I'll be. I'll be out in the wilderness. But you go, you remain there and let your sons bring information to me as needed. Uh, you'll remember that David had a counselor by the name of Ahithophel. Ahithophel was like, you know, maybe a, a secretary of state to the kingdom, so to speak. Ahithophel was this wise counselor who David would consult on matters of the kingdom. He was part of David's inner circle. And it turns out that Ahithophel has also conspired against David. He is now thrown in his loyalty with Absalom, his son. And when David heard that news... He was really grieved. It says in verse 31 of chapter 15, someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. David prays and intercedes. An important prayer, as we see here in chapter 17, God is going to answer that prayer. And there's something in David rises up. Oh, God, this this man that was my trusted counselor, he was uh, to be kind of a, an inner circle of of confidence for me and, and my kingdom and the ministry that you'd entrusted to me. Now, even he has turned against me. Lord, don't let his counsel be anything now but foolishness. Lord, repay him for this this treachery in his own heart. And another friend by the name of Hushai comes to David and David says, listen, you can be of more value to me. You've been a great servant for me in the kingdom, but now uh, I can't help you now. I'm leaving. You go back and you serve Absalom and let him kind of think that you're in service to him. And then you can be something of a spy for me. This is a, a CIA maneuver right here. Hushai, you go back and kind of become a conduit again of information. And that that's kind of the setting that, that brings us uh, uh, through chapter 15. And then in chapter 16, we just have kind of uh, David's leaving in shame. 
And you'll remember he's uh, he's being cursed by this Shimei who's throwing dirt at him and saying, you bloodthirsty man, you're getting what you deserve. And and David just humbly lets this man falsely accuse him. And we see in David a true humility. He's not looking to kind of take the kingdom back by any force. He's waiting to see what the Lord will do. But he's leaving in really a low point of his life. You can imagine his own son has come and conspired against him. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, Ahithophel, he begins to give Absalom counsel. And he says to Absalom, you need to go and have relations, sexual relations with your father's concubines, your father's women that have been left behind. You need to have relations with them because this will show to the nation that you are truly uh, the, the victor in this coup. And also it will totally separate any chance of return for your father. He'll be so offended. This will solidify what you're doing. And so Absalom is a willing uh, listener to that counsel. He pitches a tent up on the roof of the palace and he goes and has relations with these concubines. And um, it's really, of course, an ungodly and immoral counsel. And it's given and also followed. And you, you, you wonder what's going on in these men's hearts. What is it that they imagine that somehow this King David, who was called and anointed and placed by God, is now to be shamed and to be just thrown aside and that somehow we can take the kingdom for ourselves? And this is, of course, Absalom, a bitterness that has been brewing in his heart towards his father for years and also Ahithophel who looks to be something of an opportunist and takes this moment to establish his position. Now, we know that the Lord allowed this as part of David's discipline. David sinned against the Lord. God told him through the prophet Nathan that there would be consequence. But he also told him that his sins were forgiven and that God was still with him. And that God was not taking the kingdom from him. But in this moment, David is is kind of going through the discipline of the Lord. But we're also going to see that God is continuing to protect and bless David, even in this horrible situation. This is where we find ourselves in chapter 17. Pick it up with me now in verse 1. Ahithophel is just getting started with his counsel to Absalom. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Now let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and weak and make him afraid. And all the people who are with him will flee and I will strike only the king. And then I will bring back all the people to you. And when all return, except the man whom you seek, all the people will be at peace. And the saying pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Ahithophel gives this counsel. Let me go after David. Let's go. Let me go tonight. He's vulnerable. He has just fled. He's had no time to prepare, no time to organize. He's on the run. Now's the time to take him out before any spies can warn him, before he can kind of reassemble or gather himself. Let me go. Give me 12,000 men. Imagine that force. I'll go. I'll kill him. 
Once he's dead, the people will have no alternative but to turn and look to you as king. Now, the truth is this plan would have worked. The truth is this was good counsel that Ahithophel gave. This would have been exactly what would have probably ended David's reign. And Absalom likes it. All the saying pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. But we remember that David had prayed. David had prayed, Lord, let the counsel of Ahithophel be turned into foolishness. And for some unknown reason, Absalom, who, who's getting the, the, the counsel from the, the, a man who is renowned for his counsel. It says in another chapter earlier that his counsel was seen like the wisdom of God. This man was the best of counselors available to the nation and to the king. And, and yet for some reason, Absalom says this. Look with me in verse five. Then Absalom said, now call Hushai, the archite also, and let us hear what he says, too. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom spoke to him, saying, Ahithophel has spoken in this manner. Shall we do as he says? If not, speak up. Now, we remember who Hushai is, right? He's David's CIA operative in there looking to cause trouble, looking to find out what he can for David. What would cause Absalom to turn to this man who he knows is a close friend of David? But he says, well, let me get a second opinion. Thank you, Ahithophel. Your counsel has been considered the wisest of all you know, time for, for throughout our nation here. And you're, that's good. It sounds like you've got a good plan, but let's just get a second opinion. And he goes to Ahithophel or excuse me, goes to Hushai. And to be honest, this is something I believe of the Lord's hand even beginning to work out in this circumstance. Even though Ahithophel's counsel was considered like the wisdom of God, and even though his plan was good, Absalom opens the door for a competing opinion. Verse 7, Now Hushai said to Absalom, The advice that Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. For, said Hushai, You know your father and his men, that they are mighty men, And they are enraged in their minds, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father is a man of war and will not camp with the people. Surely by now he is hidden in some pit or in some other place. And it will be when some of them are overthrown at the last that whoever hears it will say, there is a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And even he who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt completely. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. Therefore, I advise that all Israel be fully gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba, like the sand that is by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. And so we will come upon him in some place where, where he may be found, and we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men who are with him, there shall not be left so much as one. Moreover, if he has withdrawn into a city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city, and we will pull it down into the river until there is not one small stone found there. So Absalom and all the men of Israel said the advice of Hushai the archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel. For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. 
Hushai responds. He says, listen, your dad, he's a mighty man. He's out. He's enraged. He's probably out there right now planning and scheming his comeback and his men are around him. They're ready for war. Now, Hushai had just come from David, right? And David was mourning and weeping and leaving and broken. But Hushai paints a different picture. He says, look, if you go to David now with just 12,000 men, who knows? You might, you know, David and his mighty men, you know, they're mighty guys. They're going to take you out. He introduces a little doubt to Ahithophel's counsel. And in so doing, when he says, listen, um, wait and draw all the men of Israel to you so that you can go out as the great commander and general of the nation. And in that time that Absalom would gather, this, of course, would become important time for David to be warned and for David to prepare for what was coming. Uh, Hushai is actually very cleverly stopping the plan of Ahithophel, which most likely would have worked, and he's creating a different scenario for Absalom to consider. And I think he's very very, very um, wise in the way he does it. Notice again in verse 11, I advise that all Israel be fully gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba, like the sand that is by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. You know, you can kind of just see as those words are Absalom. He's been, yeah, yeah, all the army will be mine. I'll be the big general. I'll go out with them, you know, and his long flowing hair that he was so proud of. You know, I mean, he was this guy that was already kind of vain and proud, wasn't he? Was Absalom a warrior? Was he a general? This guy was a spoiled prince who lived in, you know, I mean, even when he killed and murdered his brother. He had his servants do it. Absalom's never seen a day in war. His father, he knew, was a mighty man of war. Absalom was a pretender. Remember when he came back to the kingdom, he would trounce around on his chariot and he had 50 men running before him, this big, important guy. He'd never seen a day of battle in his life. But this thought of, yeah... I'll command all of Israel. I'll be the general. I'll, I'll go and I'll defeat my father on the battlefield. This all sounded really good to Ahithophel. This is even a better plan. Uh, excuse me, Absalom. This is even a better plan than Ahithophel's because it lets me be a little more important and a little more glorious. We'll wipe David and his armies out. Ahithophel, he was just going to go and do the deed and come back. I'll be here. What, what, where's my glory? And so in this, we see that Absalom is deceived. And the truth is, the Bible tells us that there is a deceitfulness of sin. That when, when a heart is engaged in sin, that there is also a deception that can come upon that mind and on that understanding. And Absalom is blind at this time because he's so caught up in his own scheme, his own plan, his own sinful way. Um, Somehow he has forgotten that God is the one that chose and placed David on the throne. Now, is is it possible that he could not have known that? Of course not. He was David's son. He grew up. He knew the stories. He knew that his dad was the one that killed Goliath. 
He knew that his dad was the one that was anointed by Samuel as a teenager to be the next king. He knew the stories about Saul and all his armies were never able to capture or thwart what God was doing in David's life. But now, for some reason, now that he has an opportunity to take the kingdom by deception, by treachery, he imagines that he can defeat David, but he forgets that he's think, he's, he thinks that even God will not be able to stop his plan. And this is a sinful plan that he imagines will prevail. And I, I, I think one of, something I wanted to draw out tonight about Absalom, probably the, the most um, difficult area in his life was this bitterness that he carried through most of his adult life. We know that his half-brother, Amnon, raped his sister, Tamar. And that began a bitter revenge plan in Absalom's heart. Two years he waited and schemed, but then he murdered, had his brother murdered. He then had to flee, and he was gone for some time as well. And he began to resent his father, David. He resented David because David never lifted a finger against his half-brother for the rape of his sister. David allowed that, and that infuriated Absalom. That's why he took matters into his own hands. But there's something going on within his character. This is a man that's beginning to, to, to rage within. There's a bitterness. There's an unforgiveness. There's a revenge scheming and plotting character that's in his heart. And this just continues to grow. It it goes unchecked. Even when he comes back, after he flees, he's banished for a season. And when he comes back, he acts indignant that his father will not immediately restore him to all the privileges of being the king's son. I want to be prince again in the nation. Why isn't my father seeing me? Remember, he burned Joab's field. Let uh, you know, uh, set Joab's fields on fire just to get audience with Joab, who would go and intercede with him for the king. And he said at that time, if, if there's anything, if, if he finds any fault in me, then let him deal with me. Otherwise, let's get on with it. I should be. He just was indignant. There's no repentance. There's no there's no brokenness in his heart for his crime. There's no sense of anything. But my father, David, is unfair, unjust and should not be treating me this way. A very selfish uh, root begins to grow in his heart, and it's a root of bitterness. And this bitterness would blind him. It would cause him to become this, this man that would, that would defile his father's concubines, that would murder his own half-brother, that would look to take his own father off of the throne, who he knows God placed on the throne. But bitterness and rage... And unforgiveness blinds him. In the book of Hebrews, the writer in Hebrews 12, 15 says, Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. I think this stands as a warning to all of us, the warning of bitterness and unforgiveness. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, describes it as a root. And you know roots. Root, roots are kind of beneath the surface. You don't always see what's going on from the surface, but the roots are deep. 
They're difficult to remove. And, and they often spring up. I remember uh, as a kid, my mom used to weed her little rose garden. And she used to have, to have me go out there and help her. I was just a little guy. And I thought, oh, this is easy. And I just picked the tops off really quick, right? I said, I'm done. She said, you didn't even get any of the roots. They'll be right back in just a couple of days. you got to get the roots. She gave me this little weed tool. And, man, those roots were a whole different project, right? But if you don't get the roots, then you can cut the top off, but it, it's coming back. And so bitterness is described as a root. It's something that goes down into the heart and lodges there, and it will spring up and cause trouble. And in Absalom's case, you know, some of his hurt, I think, was legitimate. It's not as though he had no cause to be upset with his father. I mean, his half-brother, Amnon, David's son, raped his full sister, Tamar. And David did not hold Amnon accountable. David did not deal with that. And that offended Absalom deeply. He was deeply grieved for the integrity of his sister. And that's a legitimate hurt and a legitimate grievance against David and against his half-brother. But instead of surrendering that to the Lord, instead of taking that to God in prayer, instead of allowing vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, he let it grow into this bitter unforgiveness. And here's the thing about bitterness. Sometimes the hurts are legitimate. It's not it's not like we've imagined something. It's a real hurt and that unforgiveness and that continual meditation upon what's been done and kind of replaying the scenario in our heart and in our mind. It can become a root of bitterness and it changes our character. Absalom became a different man because he gave place to this bitterness and the things that he was mad about, he became even a worse offender himself. He raped his father's concubines up on a a tent as a declaration against his father and his kingdom. He was so upset with what had been done to his sister, yet he violated these women. David had left ten concubines behind. These were women that were belonged to the king. They were part of his family and they had children and so forth. And Absalom took advantage of all of them. What, where, where, what, what about those women? Did he care about their integrity? Did he care about their reputation? No. Yet he was so offended with what had been done to his own sister. You see how the mind and the character become deceived. And how important it is that we learn to take our thoughts captive. We've all been hurt. And we've all been treated unjustly. And there is a tendency for us to replay those things. And the offense can be very deep. And if we're not careful, that can become a root and bitterness and it becomes a poison in our own character. Second Corinthians chapter 10 and verse three. Just let me quote it to you. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Listen, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So there is a discipline for the believer of taking thoughts captive. 
How many of you discovered that thoughts will run wild? Yeah? And you can take them captive. I can't even control them. They're out of control. They're just, they're just running wild in my head. Have you ever had that? I mean, I, I've, I've, I've promised the Lord, okay, Lord, I'm just not gonna, I'm not gonna think about that anymore. You know, Lord, what I'm talking about, right? I'm talking about that thing that happened to me in this person, and I'm pretty thrilled. I, well, no, stop it, stop it. I gotta reel it all back in, right? You can just get all worked up and lathered up on something just in your mind. And this is what happened with Absalom. It became a lifestyle and it became something that began to completely dominate his character, his plans, his purposes. And the scripture tells us that we need to cast down those things that want to exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. We need to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And what did Christ teach? Concerning forgiveness, that we must forgive. Freely you have received, now freely you must give. What did Jesus teach about the way we would think and meditate upon hurts and those that had treated us wrong? He says, pray for those that have treated you badly. Bless those that have cursed you. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Don't scheme your revenge. Don't scheme getting even. Learn to take those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, the Bible does teach that if we're offended within the body, we're to go and we're to seek reconciliation. And there needs to be sometimes a real meeting and and an apology and, and reconciliation needs to take place. It's not as though we just, you know, forgive everybody no matter what they do and we never say a word. That's not what the Bible teaches. But there are going to be some offenses, some things that take place. It can happen at work. It can happen in family. It can happen in friendships. And you may not be able to get the kind of reconciliation you really want, which is them, you know, bowing down before you, begging for forgiveness. You may not be able to get that. But you may have to find a way to move forward in relationship and in mercy and in forgiveness. And that takes that takes the power of God within us, helping us by his grace to bring thoughts into captivity. But Absalom, Absalom had this going on in his life. It says again in verse 14, Absalom and all the men of Israel said the advice of Hushai is better than the advice of Ahithophel. And so Absalom kind of falls for this line and is preparing to respond. Think about all that Absalom had going for him in this battle for the kingdom. He's got the full army of Israel. He's got the best of counsel. He is already won the heart of the people, right? We saw that in earlier chapters as establishing himself as a judge. He politically already maneuvered into the hearts of the people. I mean, he's got everything he needs to take this kingdom from David. David is leaving weak and fearful and broken. But the difference is David, David has the Lord. David is praying Absalom is scheming. David is humbly praying. Psalm 118. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord to put confidence than to put confidence in princes. 
Romans 8.31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That would be the second real theme that I would want to kind of sow into your heart tonight. The first one is the warning against bitterness. But the second one is learning to trust the Lord even in what seemed to be overwhelming circumstance. Let's read on. Back to our text. Let's see how this advances. Verse 15. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so Ahithophel advised Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so I have advised. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, do not spend this night in the, plan, in the plains of the wilderness, but speedily cross over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. So Hushai is now sending out messengers to warn. Verse 17, now Jonathan and Ahimaaz stayed in Enrogel. These were the sons of the priest. Remember, these were the guys David said, you go back and then be couriers of information for me. So they stayed in Enrogel, for they dared not be seen coming into the city. So they stayed just outside the city. So a female servant would come and tell them, and they would go and tell King David. So they'd set up this little chain of communication. Verse 18, nevertheless, a lad saw them and told Absalom, uh-oh. But both of them went away quickly and came to a man's house in Bahurim, who had a well in his court. And they went down into it. And then the woman took a spread uh, and spread a covering over the well's mouth and spread grain on it, and the thing was not known. So she made it look like there was no well there, but she had a, uh, just spread some grain there. Verse 20. And when Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? So the woman said to them, They have gone over the water brook. And when they had searched and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. Now it came to pass. That this is kind of like you can see this playing out in a movie, right? This, they're, they're in the well and they, you can hear Absalom out there. And it's just this would be a great theater. Verse 21. Now it came to pass after they had departed that they came up out of the well and went and told King David and said to David, Arise and cross over the water quickly. That would be the Jordan River. You need to get further out into the wilderness. For thus has Ahithophel advised against you. So David and all the people who were with him arose and crossed over the Jordan. By morning light, not one of them was left who had not gone over the Jordan. So David is warned. And again, we see the hand of God. These are not coincidences. These are the grace of God still working in David's life. David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. And boy, he did. Absalom fell for Hushai's counsel instead. And we see that David, and here's, here's the point, no matter what Absalom or Ahithophel schemed or planned, you cannot out-scheme the Lord. When the Lord is for you, who can be against you? God had, had, had established David as the king. God had established David to reign over his people. Yes, David sinned. Yes, David fell. Yes, the Lord would discipline his son, David, but 
God ultimately still protected David and preserved David, even though Absalom seems to be doing everything possible to affect his evil plan. Romans 8.28, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This is not an easy time for David. This is not anything that David would have planned or desired, but even in the midst of it all, God is still with him. God is still working on his behalf. And I hope to encourage your heart with that tonight, that for those that love God, for those that in their heart believe that he has called them to his saving purpose, even in the midst of very difficult circumstance and trial, which we all experience, God is able to work it in time for good. There's nothing good for David in this moment. He's having to flee for his life. And yet we see that God is working for good. We see that God is protecting and sparing and, and saving him. And that these little coincidences, these little happenstances, they're not that at all. They are, in fact, the hand and grace of God working and maneuvering David into position. Hold your place there. We've got time. I just want to let you look with me quickly at Genesis chapter 39. As I was reading here about David, I couldn't help but think about Joseph. And Genesis 39, you'll remember that Joseph had a dream, a vision from God, and he shared it with his family and his brothers became insanely jealous and schemed up to kill him. But eventually just to sold, they decided to sell him into slavery And you remember the story how Joseph was taken down and sold in Egypt. And then you pick it up in chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. Really? I'm a slave being sold? (laughs) You're with me? He was with him. And he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of the house, and all that he had he put under authority. So it was from the time that he made him overseer of the house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And you know what happened next. Potiphar's wife began to desire Joseph, and she falsely accused him, even though he denied her. This ended up Joseph being accused of you know, attacking Potiphar's wife, and he was put into prison. You advance down to verse 21 of chapter 39. But the Lord was with Joseph. Really? Now I'm in prison, but apparently the Lord is still with me. And showed him mercy. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. 
You know the story. We won't continue on, but Joseph would eventually end up before Pharaoh interpreting a dream and being given really uh, authority over the whole Egyptian kingdom. And God simply navigating Joseph into the place that he had for him. And, and it just, I couldn't help but see the connection. Here's David. He's fleeing for his life. He's running in shame. He's, 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 he's left with nothing, enough, no hope of the kingdom but God. God is still maneuvering and navigating on David's behalf. We saw it earlier in our text. God, the Lord had already intended to deal with Absalom. God is able to keep us even in trying and seemingly horrible times. Maybe you're going through something on the job and it seems like it's just a nightmare. Could it be that God is still there with you in the midst of it? Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you've been laid off and you're wondering what's going on. Could it be that God is still with you and working in your behalf? Maybe there's some family drama that you're having to work through. There's always family drama, right, that we're working through. But God is able to work even in that. You know, God is able to work even in difficult circumstance. This is, I want you to see that David is at the lowest of lows, but God. He was never out of God's hand. He was never, his, he and his kingdom were never really in jeopardy. Even though it looked like he was hanging by a thread, when God is the one holding the thread, you're okay. And God was still working. You know, maybe you're a pastor and you can't find a building for your church. Wait, wait, that's not supposed to, that's not supposed to be in my notes. <laughs> but God is still working, isn't he? God is still working. David would say this in Psalm 34:19, "Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all." Boy, David knew affliction, but God, he also knew God's deliverance. Come back with me to our text and we'll finish up here tonight. Chapter 17. Ahithophel. Now, when Ahithophel, verse 23, when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey and arose and went home to his house, to his city, and that he put his household in order and hanged himself and died. And he was buried in his father's tomb. Wow. Quite a response to not having your advice followed. There's more than that going on here. Ahithophel can see the writing on the wall. Ahithophel was wise and he could discern something is changing here. My counsel, which was good and would have worked, was rejected. And it's almost as if Ahithophel realizes that his days are numbered. God has turned things around and he then kills himself. He knows now that the Lord is working against him. Ahithophel knew how David became king. He knew that it was God who placed him there. Who knows what happened in his heart? Maybe it was some bitterness. He was Bathsheba's grandfather. Maybe he too harbored some bitterness against David. Maybe he was just greedy for power and Absalom was the rising star and so he threw his lot in there. But now he realizes, I'm fighting against a force that's bigger than me. It's God. 
And he's, and I'm on the wrong side of this equation. My days are numbered. And so he takes his own life. You cannot outsmart the Lord. And even Ahithophel knew that. Verse 24. Let's read on. Then David went to Mahanaim and Absalom crossed over the Jordan. He and all the men of Israel with him. And Absalom made Amasa captain of the army instead of Joab. Joab, remember, he was with David now. And this Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Jithra, an Israelite who had gone into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zariah, Joab's mother. So he's kind of a cousin of Joab. Verse 26. So Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. They're all there now. The whole army is out. They're waiting and camping, looking for David. Verse 27. Now it happened when David had come to uh, Mahanaim, that Shobi, the son of Nahash from Rabbah, of the people of Ammon, Makir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the, Git, the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought beds and basins, earthen vessels and wheat, barley and flour, parched grain and beans, lentils and parched seeds, honey and curds, isn't it wonderful? The scripture gives us all the detail. You can almost taste this little feast. Sheep and cheese of the herd for David and the people who were with him to eat. Excuse me, for David and the people who were with him to eat. Excuse me, they, they brought all these things for David and the people to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. David escapes this immediate danger. And he also, uh, Absalom, although he comes with his army, listen, Absalom is no general. Absalom should not be out there at all. He should have stayed back in Jerusalem. He should have let Ahithophel take 12,000 men and do this before David had a chance to regroup. But no, now he's out and he too is vulnerable, as we will see. And as he's camped there in Gilead, David is in another place and David receives this help in time of need. It is interesting, all these names, which you saw me struggle to pronounce, but they have, they get their, they get their name in the, in the scripture, don't they? These are men, we don't hear of these people, we don't know anything about these people, except that they helped David in his time of need. Jesus said, even a cup of cold water given in my name will not go without reward. It's as if God honors these that have come to David in his desperate time of need. Thank the Lord for true friends. Thank the Lord for those who bring help in time of need. The Lord knows how to send help when you need it. Maybe that brother or that sister that reaches out to you in a moment of desperation. Maybe it's that coin in the fish's mouth that Jesus and Peter needed to pay the tax. Maybe it's just some unexpected blessing that comes just at the right time. Those are not coincidences. Those are the hand of God encouraging. Those are the hand of God showing you that, hey, I am with you. David comes and all this beautiful feast is brought to him and his people to supply. And that encouraged his heart, not just physically for the food but spiritually to know that God was still sending and taking care of, care of him. I had a call last week from a pastor friend of mine. He 
said, hey, I'd like to meet with you next week just, you know, for coffee and we'll talk. I said, "Okay, fine, let's do that. I didn't know what it was about. I thought, well, let's who no, no, maybe maybe I'm in trouble and don't know it. I don't I wasn't sure. No, I didn't think that. But I just, you know, and uh, so we got together and we actually met at a, at a Denny's and had he, he treated me to breakfast and he said, the Lord just put you on my heart. The Lord put you on my heart and I just wanted to come and, and uh, pray with you and encourage you and hear what's going on and just kind of want to come alongside and strengthen your hand and the work that God's calling you to do. And I'll tell you, that really blessed me. That was that was uh, uh, help in time of need. And it was, you know, it's like he sensed it, but he said, you know, it's not. I said, you know what? Thank you for that. Thank you for your friendship. He says, listen, the Lord prompted me to reach out to you. So it's the Lord that wants you to know he's with you. He's encouraging you. You're not alone. He's going to see you through these challenges. He's got future and hope for you. And the scripture would encourage us to come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. A few thoughts just in closing here tonight. And I think, I think we'll pray for some of this after some worship. I'll ask the worship team just to come. I want to pray for anyone that may be struggling with the root of bitterness, some unforgiveness, some hurt that you're not able to get past, and you need to give it to the Lord tonight, lest it become a root, lest it become troublesome in your life. And then I also want to encourage you tonight to know that the Lord is with you even in difficult season. And it may be tonight that you need to pray for God to give help in time of need. Maybe you need a miracle. Maybe you need someone to uh, just happen to call you and encourage you or whatever the case may be, whether it's a financial, a physical, an emotional, spiritual. I want to pray for those that just need help in time of need. But. Before we do that, let me close us in prayer and then we'll sing a song of worship and then we'll pray for these two areas. But Lord, we want to thank you tonight for your word to us from Second Samuel chapter 17. And Lord, we Lord, we enjoy just the, the story. It's so intriguing. There's so much going on. And we see how your hand is intervening and weaving this, Lord, and we look forward to studying together and see how it all plays out. But God, we are also learning some things here tonight, I believe. The tragedy, really, of Absalom, Ahithophel, these men who had once been son of the king, counselor to the king, how their hearts their hearts grew bitter, their hearts became selfish, and they their own heart and character was was ultimately destroyed and that they could scheme such such evil that they could try and imagine that somehow they could outwit God's plan and purpose for his kingdom. And Lord, it does serve as a warning for us, but we're also encouraged tonight to see how faithful you are. And David armed nothing, armed with nothing but prayer will prevail. And Lord, as we close here tonight, before we pray for some of these other matters, I I do want to give opportunity for anyone that may need to respond to the Lord. It may be that you are here tonight and you do not have that confidence of relationship with him. These promises that we're talking about, that God works all things together for good for those that love God 
and those that are called according to his purpose. It may be that you do not have that relationship with the Lord, that confidence. But the Lord is speaking to your heart tonight and he's drawing you and saying, hey, I love you. I want to forgive you. I I want you to turn your heart to Jesus and receive salvation and all the promises that I have for you and your future and your hope are secure in Christ. I'd love to pray for you tonight if you just need to receive Christ and be forgiven and start a new relationship with him. Maybe you have walked away from the Lord or your life has just grown distant and cold apart from the Lord and you need to come back to him tonight and rededicate, recommit your life. Put yourself back into this place of promise and help and confidence. David could have done all kinds of reactions, but he kept his heart trusting in the Lord. And it may be that you need to just come to the Lord again tonight and recommit your heart to him. I'd love to pray for you too. So if you're here tonight, you want to receive Jesus for the very first time, or you want to rededicate, recommit your life to him, I'm asking you just to raise your hand where you're seated. Let me see you and I'll pray for you. God bless you. Anyone else tonight? The Lord's speaking to you. You need the Lord. God bless you. A hand in the front here and also in the back. Anyone else? God bless you. Let four or five people respond. This is a this first prayer response is receiving Jesus or rededicating your life to Jesus. Anyone else before I pray for these that have responded? And so, Lord, for these hearts that you're speaking to tonight, Father, I pray that they would have a confidence of your great love for them. It's not because of their righteousness or or their being a good person. Lord, there's there's no hope in self-righteousness or trying to be good enough. Lord, we, we need a Savior. We need forgiveness. We need mercy. We need Jesus. And so I pray for these hearts tonight that they would turn to you in sincerity and say, Jesus, please forgive me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for raising from the dead and giving me hope for eternal life. Come into my heart, come into my life, and not only forgive me, but now please change me. Help me to become the man, the woman that that I believe you've called me to be. I want to walk with the help that comes from your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.